Well, good morning, ladies. Buenos dias, um, EWG ladies. This morning, I am wearing my pearl ring. It's a special ring to me because it was a gift from my dad. While he was stationed in the Philippines toward the end of World War II, he bought a pearl ring for my mom. It was a beautiful pearl ring with three pure white pearls across the top. My parents then went on to have five children, and three of us are girls. So on each of our 12th birthdays, they would take one of those pearls and present it to the daughter who turned 12. This ring is precious to me, not because of any great monetary value, but because of the giver of the gift and the intense meaning behind it. When I wear it, I'm often reminded of another pearl given to me by another father, the pearl of great price that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 13. Jesus says that this pearl has meaning to it also. It's like the kingdom of heaven, and when it's found, the one seeking it will sell everything to have it. God's word is precious to me because of the giver of the gift and the meaning found inside of it. In it, we find his story of the beginnings and how the world will end. Everything in between is pointing us to Jesus Christ and his plan of redeeming his people. Alistair Begg gives this quote from Scotland. He says, the Old Testament is Jesus predicted, the Gospels are Jesus revealed, the Acts of the Apostles are Jesus preached, the Epistles are Jesus explained, and Revelation is Jesus expected. Well, today we're going to see that Abraham treasures God's promised seed more than anything in this world, including his own son. And we're going to see another who doesn't value God's promise at all. There have been 24 years of obstacles now, which have threatened God's promise of land, seed, and blessing, including Sarah's barrenness, which has been the major hurdle and obstacle throughout the entire narrative. But Abraham still believed God. He trusted that God would keep his covenant. So ladies, open your Bibles to Genesis 18, and we're going to start in again. It has been 10 years since God has given circumcision, if you remember, as the sign of his covenant with Abraham. And he now appears as Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent. So in verse 1, it says that three men show up at the tent. But only one he calls Lord. The one he calls Lord is considered to be the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. And this is confirmed again in verses 17, 19, 26, 31, 32, and 33. The two other are angels, and their identities are revealed in chapter 19, verse 1. God has again come to fellowship with Abraham. And the Lord has good news. By this time next year, Sarah is going to give 
birth to the long-awaited heir. Now, the custom of the day back then was that women stayed separate from the men. But God wanted Sarah to hear what he had to say. So from the other side of the tent door, her reaction was to laugh, right? She's been waiting so long for this, and she's so old. She thinks it's really too late. But God's plan, it was always for a miracle seed. This heir would be chosen by God and only possible through God. The Lord, knowing her heart, calls her out, and he asks her, Is anything too hard for the Lord in verse 14? The word hard in Hebrew is the word pala, and it means wondrous or marvelous. In other words, he's saying, is there anything too wondrous for the Lord? Do any of you have an area of your life when you have waited and waited and waited, and you've just about given up, and then the Lord does something wondrous? I've had those experiences. Excuse me. Let me tell you the story of Herbie. My father-in-law, whom we lovingly called Herbie, but Herbie was no love bug. He was a difficult man who had a difficult childhood, and he had turned into a bitter and angry adult. He scoffed at our faith, and he made every single family gathering stressful. Even one of our toddlers, my daughter's here somewhere today, even one of our toddlers had once innocently asked when being told that we were going to go visit grandpa, nice grandpa or grumpy grandpa? Excuse me. The gospel was shared and rejected, excuse me, more times than I can even count by various family members. But we continued to pray. Truthfully, though, I never thought he'd repent, and I never thought he'd believe in the Lord. Until, until one day, one hospital visit for one very simple test. I had asked him before the test if he knew where he was going to go if he died. To which my mother-in-law, who was sitting in the room, quickly replied, He's not going to die! And I, I, I don't know why, but for some strange reason, I think it was the Holy Spirit, I said something uncharacteristically harsh for a visit to a hospital patient. And I said, oh, but you are going to die. It may not be today, and it may not be as a result of the test that you're going to have today, but you're going to die, and I really care where you're going to go. Well, I went home, and later that evening, my husband went to visit his dad. As he exited the elevator, the loudspeaker came on calling for a code blue in the very room that his dad was in. Herbie had choked and had stopped breathing. Well, he woke up the next morning in intensive care, and for the very first time in his life, he was ready to receive the gospel. And my husband had the joy and privilege of once again extending the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to his own father. But this time, this time he repented, and he gave his whole heart to the Lord. He was bedridden and unable to speak for four months after that day. 
but they were a glorious four months. He was no longer angry. He was no longer grumpy grandpa, and he had a changed heart. It was full of love for God and full of love for his family. I had wrongly thought that nothing could change his heart. Nothing could change his mind. But I saw firsthand, firsthand that truly nothing is too difficult or too marvelous for the Lord. He is the God of creation, and he alone will bring about his miraculous seed. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. Ladies, there is no wayward family member or persecuting co-worker whom God cannot change. There is no marriage that God cannot restore, and there's no addiction that God cannot overcome. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. God would give a child to a woman whose womb was as good as dead and to her 99-year-old husband. Impossible by human standards, but nothing is too wondrous for the Lord. So through this divine visit, we learn also why God chose Abraham and the specific role he must play in God's redemptive plan. As they walk together in the direction of Sodom, the Lord says in Genesis 18, verse 19, For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Ladies, scripture always emphasizes the importance of a godly leader because people tend to follow the leader. Philippians 3.17 says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. We too are called to lead by example in Titus 2. It says, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, and then very specifically to us women. The older women are to teach the younger women what is good. Believers in Christ are commanded to teach others about him. God is confidently placing great responsibility on Abraham because he recognizes that Abraham has placed his confidence in the Lord. But there was some heaviness that accompanied this responsibility. And this came in the form of some bad news because the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah had grown so great, it had become so vile, the judgment of God was looming. These were the very people whom God had rescued years earlier, yet they had never repented and they were without excuse. And this is what Abraham must teach his descendants. The justice of the Lord demands that sin is judged. God is merciful to his righteous ones, and God's wrath is justified. Verse 21 says, The Lord says that the outcry of sin is so great, he will go down and know for sure that this cry is true. God already knows, but he's collecting the evidence for a just conviction. God knows everything and he punishes the wickedness or the blessedness, or excuse me, or the righteousness of people accordingly. Abraham does, he needs to teach his descendants that if God's chosen nation doesn't conform their lives to God's will, 
which is righteousness, and they don't make right decisions based upon God's will, which is justice, they too will be without excuse, and they will forfeit God's blessing until they repent and come back to love justice and to love righteousness. God is going to allow his friend to understand the coexisting truths of God's mercy towards the righteous and his judgment of the wicked. Fellowship with God has been initiated by God. And now it also appears that the Lord wants Abraham to intercede on behalf of others because of what he knows is true about God. So how is it that Abraham can so boldly approach God and ask questions. Did any of you wonder that? Abraham appeals to God because he knows him, and he knows what's true about him. He asked the question in Genesis 18, verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike? Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Abraham evidently believes that there are righteous people in Sodom, even though most of them are in violent rebellion against God. He appeals to God's justice, he appeals to God's mercy, and he appeals to God's sovereignty. Abraham may appear bold, perhaps even a little audacious here, but he approaches the Lord with humility and perseverance. He's confident of God's grace in choosing him. He's confident in God's mercy towards his people and also in God's perfect justice. Hebrews 4.16 encourages all believers to do just the same thing. It says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. So Abraham does just that when he intercedes on behalf of the righteous. And he asks the Lord, how many righteous people need to be found in these cities for God to hold back his judgment? And we know the story. He goes all the way from 50 down to 10 people, which was perhaps the number of people in Lot's family. And then the Lord just departs from him. Ladies, to be like our Lord Jesus Christ is to intercede for others. Jesus lives to intercede for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus prays for all whom he declares righteous. The world may hate Christians, but the presence of righteousness in this world really benefits them because the justice of God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. As was true in Sodom and Gomorrah, we are to pray for others, but it's up to them to either repent of their sin or to be judged for their sin. God judges each person for their own sin. Abraham's righteousness could not be applied to the people of Sodom, not even his own family members. Every single person stands alone before a holy God. Romans 14.12 tells us, So then, 
Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Abraham is an example to us to trust God with those whom we love and we pray for. We are to intercede on behalf of others, but because of our faith in God's righteous judgments and his perfect mercy, we can leave them at the feet of the Lord. Abraham is an example of Isaiah 26, verse 3. The steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. There are probably people in each one of our lives who need to be prayed for, who you pray for, or some that you never stop praying for. But when we have our mind fixed on who God is, we can peacefully trust God with them. Chapter 19 deals with the destruction of Sodom. We know that these descendants of Ham are characterized by sexual immorality. And just as Romans 1 tells us that when the truth is continually rejected, the hearts of the people become darkened, and eventually God will give them over to their lusts. At the end of this spiral into sin is always the sin of homosexuality until God finally gives them over completely to depraved minds. This sounds a lot like the men of Sodom. Lot's son-in-laws wouldn't believe the truth, but rather believe the lie that God wouldn't punish their sin. They laughed about it. And the men from every level of society are so committed to their vile lusts and immoral acts that even when struck with blindness, they wore themselves out trying to get into the house to assault Lot and the visiting angels. It's hard to find a better example of a mind so depraved that they can't think rationally, they can't think reasonably. Until you fast forward to today, when minds have become so depraved that many cannot even recognize the most simple, the most obvious truth that men and women are created different by God's design. God answers the prayer of Abraham. In verse 29, while God destroyed the cities, he remembered Abraham and he sent Lot out of the city before the destruction. Psalm 37, 28 and 29 says, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Lot was righteous, not because of his actions, because his faith. And we know that in 2 Peter 2, 7, it tells us that. But we also know his actions were pretty sketchy. He had selfishly taken the most desirable land, remember in chapter 13. He had moved his family close to an evil yet more comfortable lifestyle And he had so settled it in over the years that he was actually sitting at the gate of the city with all the men of influence in chapter 19. He foolishly offered his own two daughters to save his angelic guests. Perhaps his moral compass had been weakened by living so close to such great evil. 
Peter tells us that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of these wicked people and that his righteous soul was tormented by living so close, but he stayed there. Maybe he thought he could influence the evil people, but as is too often the case, the culture around them had influenced Lot and his family. Only four escaped Sodom that day, Lot, his wife, and two of his daughters. They had faith, even if it was a very weak faith. Lot had such an attachment to what the world could offer that he had to actually be dragged out of the city by the angels. And his wife had such attachment that she looked back, perhaps even turned back, missing what she was leaving behind, more than looking forward to what God had promised. Sadly, Lot represents many Christians today, those who see the world through a worldly lens, not a biblical lens. Their attachment to this world is stronger than their attachment to God. These are the believers whose work here on earth will be burnt up. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says that these immature believers are saved, but only as those who escape through the flames like Lot. People who walk by sight, ladies, put themselves in danger of being deceived by what they see. Lot will disappear in shame and oblivion. His two daughters, also who were the product of the weakened faith of their parents, would produce the Moabites and the Ammonites through their incestuous relationship with their father. These people will become bitter enemies of Israel. But just a reminder here, God's grace triumphs over sin because we will see in the book of Ruth, even even the horrible sin of Lot's daughters, in the book of Ruth, we see a Moabitess who becomes one of God's chosen people by faith. And she's included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Ruth 1 and Matthew 1. Luke uses Lot to be a warning to us. Luke 17, verses 28 through 30 says this, that Jesus will return and we'd better be ready. He says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. We must take God's warnings seriously. Well, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham heads south and his old nemesis, fear, creeps in again. And once again, he allows fear to cause him to ask Sarah to lie to the king. Abraham had forgotten that God had told him he would be his shield and that he was not to fear. But but once again, Abraham is scolded by an unrighteous pagan ruler, but this time he tries to wiggle out of his lie by stating that Sarah, well, she really is, she's both my wife and my sister in verse 12 of chapter 20. But when a lie is mixed with truth, it then becomes a lie. Remember, God's righteousness will not mix with unrighteousness. Remember this, too. 
God had rejuvenated Sarah's body, and she could have become pregnant by a pagan king. And this lie could have put God's plan in jeopardy. But God protected Sarah, and God protected his promise. So now, this humbled Abraham, the one who's counted as righteous, is caught again, fearing men more than God. Sin in the believer is an everyday force. We know that. And we are all in danger of succumbing when we take our eyes off of God and place them on our circumstances. The faithfulness of God is on display in these passages. And to quote Psalm 103, verses 10 and 11, he does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. God's promised plan is always in place, and we can be thankful his covenant is secured by himself and not by us. As John MacArthur has said many, many times, if I could lose my salvation, I would. But God's timing is perfect, and his plan is always in place. Finally, Finally, Isaac is born in Genesis 21, verse 2. It says, For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken of him. So after 25 years, this elderly couple have the son that God had promised. The birth of Isaac is perfectly timed and miraculous. God wasn't hindered by any of the obstacles, and he wasn't delayed. It was always his plan to show that he is sovereign, he's powerful, and he's always in complete control. Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah is 90. God is never early, and God is never late. His plan is always perfectly on time. And I think we need this reminder in these days of uncertainty and fear. There's nothing out of his control, and he will execute his plan at the time he has ordained and appointed. The time of Isaac's birth was set by God. But we don't really know much about Isaac's early, early years other than the fact that his birth gave his parents great joy. In fact, his name even means laughter. But when he was weaned at the celebration of that, Sarah saw Ishmael, who would have been a teenager, somewhere around 16, 17 years old. She saw him making fun of his little half-brother, and she demanded that Abraham send he and his mother Hagar away. There was no way her son Isaac would share his inheritance with Ishmael. Galatians 4, 29 through 30 says it this way. But as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is also now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. God was preserving his covenant. Abraham loved Ishmael, but he obeyed God. The descendants must come through Isaac, and he knew that. Abraham was not afraid to place Ishmael in the hands of God. 
by faith in God, Abraham sent Hagar and Ishmael away. It wasn't from cruelty that he sent them. It was because he trusted God. God shows his trustworthiness by extending mercy to Hagar and to Ishmael. It says, God heard the lad crying and he provided for them and promised to make a great nation of him. Abraham's faith has been tested many times. And all of those prior tests could kind of be considered pop quizzes in comparison to this coming test. This is the apex of Abraham's faith. It is his final exam. It must be administered before Abraham can rightfully be called the father of faith. And it will reveal how much God's gift of faith had changed Abraham. So in verse 22, God calls out to Abraham. He says, here I am. Verse 2, he says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Isaac is the only son because Isaac is the son of promise. God repeats this three times in verse 2, verse 12, and verse 16. And he had to do it now. Immediate obedience was required. The love between Abraham and Isaac is so evident. And this is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. Moriah is the place that God determined for the sacrifice. It was a three-day journey from Beersheba, where they were living, to Moriah. Mount Moriah is the very place where David would build an altar to offer burnt sacrifices and peace offerings to the Lord in 2 Samuel 24. It's where Solomon's temple would be built in 2 Chronicles 3. This is the place where daily sacrifice for the sins of the people would be made for his people. It's less than one mile away from Golgotha, where Jesus Christ was crucified. Isaac was to be offered as a burnt offering to the Lord. Paul Twist calls this the catch 22. It's chapter 22, and it creates a tension that seems really contradictory here. After God promises an heir and Abraham waits for years and years and years, God miraculously produces this heir the seed that's needed to produce the seed that is promised, he tells him to kill him. So what is Abraham to do? What would you do? What does he do? He obeys. He obeys right away. <clears throat> there is not even the slightest hint that Abraham wavered in his faith. He will trust God. He will obey God. He will worship God no matter the cost. This sacrifice was an act of worship. In verse 5, it says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. So strong was Abraham's fear of the Lord and faith in him that he was able to give Isaac entirely to God. Romans 12 tells us to present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. True worship, ladies, involves 
sacrifice. Well, Abraham may not have understood the reason for God's command, but he trusted God. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 tells us that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. What's interesting is that no one had ever been raised from the dead before, but he believed God could do it. You know, in our humanity, we think that sacrifice is the loss of something, but in God's eyes, it's the way to victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? You know, this is such a dramatic story because it involves every element of the life of a believer, faith, hope, and love. But what about Isaac? What was he thinking? It doesn't say, but he did not fight his father. He was a young man at this time, perhaps his late teens, maybe even up to 20 years old. We don't know. He could have easily overpowered or outrun his 115-year-old father. But Isaac had confidence in the father he loved, and he proved that he had full faith in God. He submitted to the will of his father. Just as Abraham raised the knife to kill his son, his only son, whom he loved, the angel of the Lord called out and said, Abraham, Abraham, don't kill him, stop. I now know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. He had passed the ultimate test. And the Lord provided a ram for the sacrifice. And Abraham named the place the Lord will provide. Did anybody pick up on that? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. In the mount, it will be provided. Abraham believed it wasn't just the ram that the Lord had provided. He understood that the seed would come as promised by God, and he believed by faith that the seed would be the Messiah, the Savior, the final sacrifice for those who also, in faith, believe. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 makes this connection of this event to what God the Father would sacrifice and what the Lord Jesus Christ would be required to do in loving submission to his Father's will when he came as a Savior who would offer himself to save others. The verse that just springs to my mind, I don't know if it's in your heads too, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life in John three sixteen. Many years ago, in a study of Genesis 22, kind of much like this one, the weight of what Abraham had been asked to do, but it was not required of him, and what God sent his son to do, but was required of him, hit me. And I remember my eyes just filled with tears as I began to grasp just how much my God loves me. 
We have two sons, Matthew and Adam, whom we love. No matter how much I love another person, I love you ladies, but I would never, never put the punishment of death on one of my sons to save anyone from a death they deserved. But Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. This is a love I can't understand. I can't comprehend it. It's a love that God lavished on us in the person of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. For believers, he was punished so that we would not be. He died so that we would not. He placed all of our sin on himself so that we could place so that he could place all of his righteousness on us. He rose so that one day we will rise. He ascended into heaven and he prays for us as he prepares a place to fellowship with him forever. Abraham didn't know all these details, but he put his faith in this. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Abraham's faith was tested and proven. His fear of the Lord was greater than his fear of anything else, and God provided. When our faith is stretched to its limit, God's provision is limitless. So God now gives Abraham an anchor that's going to hold him for the rest of his life. In verses 16 through 18, it says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. Hebrews 6.13 explains God's oath. It says, For when God made this promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater He swore by himself. And Paul tells us that this oath is for us in Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18. He says, In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God worked all of Abraham's life events for his good and for God's glory. He showed that he had a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the foundation for our hope. So, Many years of peaceful blessings have passed in chapter 23, and Sarah dies at age 127. Sarah's death becomes the catalyst for Abraham to legally purchase the very first and only piece of property he would ever own in the promised land. It's the cave of Machpelah and the field that surrounded it. He was forever staking claim to this land of promise. God's promises don't wear out just because our bodies do. And with a mind toward the next generation, Abraham seeks a bride for Isaac in Genesis 24. These are the last recorded acts of our friend Abraham. The covenant that God had made with him drove him and gave him hope and it gave him purpose. Abraham is nearing the end of his life 
and he is faithful to his calling. He asks his oldest servant, was perhaps Eleazar, who would have been around 85 years old by this time, asked him to swear to find a bride for Isaac. Abraham was motivated to keep Isaac from anyone who might lead the people away from the one true God. Isaac must stay in the land, and his wife must be willing to come and join him there. God would send his angel before the servant to guide and protect the servant on his 450-mile journey to Mesopotamia. There were several opportunities for the plan to have derailed. The failure of the servant to bring back a wife could have happened in verse, verses 5 through 8. The servant might have missed the Lord's direction in verse 21. Laban could have said no in verse 49. Rebecca could have refused to go in 54 through 58. And Laban and his mom could have conv- convinced Rebecca to stay in 56 through 60. But God led the mission, as was stated by the servant in 24 verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness, his has said, and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. This passage is about God and his has said, his faithfulness and to his promise and his loving kindness to his people. I'm really sorry if you have previously thought this was a how to find a husband. All you have to do is just go hang out at the well. But it isn't about finding a spouse. It's about God being faithful to his covenant promise. Faithful believers can have confidence that God will lead them. So when Sarah died, Abraham was approximately 137 years old. God had also restored vitality to him before the birth of Isaac, and Abraham was able to have another wife, Keturah, and through her, he fathered six more sons who were also loved by him and were also sent away with gifts, just as Ishmael had been sent away. And this was all to ensure that God's planned blessing would be passed right to Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah were going to be entrusted with the responsibility of continuing the divine covenantal plan to the next generation. So Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Uh, 25 verse 20 tells us that. Rebekah also was barren, but God once again proved that his promises are not dependent on human effort. So Isaac prays in verse 21. And Rebecca conceived. When she did become pregnant, she knew something was different, so she asked God about it. And God gave her a clue as to the trouble that would arise between the twins that she was carrying. The elder would serve the younger. And at birth, the firstborn Esau was named because he was reddish and hairy. I always wonder, how hairy does that baby have to be to be named but And Jacob got his name because he grabbed his older brother's heel. Paul tells us in Romans 9, 10 through 13, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for 
though the twins were not yet born and not yet done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This statement is about becoming the heir of promise. God's choice of Jacob could be regarded as a display of love toward Jacob. And his rejection of Esau as the heir could be regarded as hate. Divine election is sometimes really difficult for us to understand, but that doesn't make it untrue. Those who receive the covenant promises are chosen by God's sovereign election. This is what Charles Spurgeon said when a woman made this statement to him. She said, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. The birthright ensured that the firstborn would be the leader of the family and he would receive a double portion of the inheritance. But the real value, the real value was not material. It was the spiritual heritage that God had promised to Abraham, then to Isaac, and now to Isaac's son. Jacob understood this, but Esau didn't. The birthright that Esau possessed but didn't value would be cunningly purchased by his brother who wanted the birthright and knew how to capitalize on what his brother valued most, which was food. There's an interesting parallel here in the story of the fall. In both instances, someone who was naive was outwitted, and they traded what was most valuable for food. Both had devastating results, and both could not be overturned by any human effort. Genesis 25:34 says that Esau despised his birthright. He treated it as if it was worthless, and he held it in contempt. We learn from Esau that faithless people will give up God's eternal promises to satisfy temporary desires. Well, just like his father before him in Genesis 26, Abraham, just like Abraham, Isaac is tested by famine. But the Lord reminds Isaac this time, stay in the land. And then he gives the same promise that he had given to Abraham. He reaffirms his promise to the chosen heir. Also, like like his father, he was a fearful man. God had to protect Rebekah from King Abimelech of Gerar when Isaac lied about her, just as his father had about his mother. Once again, Deception had threatened to endanger God's promises, and once again, God's covenant will not be undone. It's time to say goodbye to our friend whom we lovingly call the father of faith. As promised, God gave him a peaceful death, satisfied with life and full of the Lord's blessing. He was buried in the cave of Machpelah along with Sarah. God's covenant was foretold in Genesis, initiated with Abraham, and would continue on through God's 
plan of redemption using one man and his heirs, one land, one nation, and eventually the one seed who would crush the head of Satan and save his people. People will die, but God's plan will continue with others who are also chosen by God to take up the task and train the next generation until God's plan is completed. No one is indispensable in God's plan. But there's no greater joy or privilege than to be part of God's redemptive plan. Abraham was chosen to be a big part and faithfully taught Isaac, who then taught Jacob, who then taught Joseph. God's covenant with his people is still moving forward. Are we being faithful, ladies, to further his plan in those he's placed in our lives? Well, I began this lecture by telling the story of how God reached out and saved my father-in-law, Herbie. He had lived in rebellion all of his life, but in faith, he believed in the promise of God to save him by the work of Jesus on the cross. Herbie was bedridden and, as I said, only lived for four more months. Our friend Abraham believed the promise of God to save him through the seed who would come. And he lived 100 years after God called him out of his life of rebellion. Two men with two very different lives and callings, yet both saved by God. One never did any works for the Lord, but by faith was counted righteous by God. The other accomplished much work for the Lord, but by faith he was counted righteous by God. Both responded in faith on the day that the Lord called to them. So my question to each of us is, how have you responded to the call of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling Abraham. Thank you for all of uh, this true stories about his life that were written down for us to learn from and learn all about who you are and your purposes to redeem your people through one man, Jesus Christ, your, your son, your only begotten son, whom you sacrificed for us. Lord, let us learn from Abraham to be faithful to our calling, to not fear, but remember that you are worthy of anything we might think we are sacrificing here on earth. Help us not to be like Lot and, and get too caught up in this world, Lord. Help us to not be like Esau, who doesn't value the things that you have given us, Lord. Our, our home isn't here. Our heritage is somewhere glorious and somewhere wonderful. Help us to keep our heart and our minds set on these things as we leave this place today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.